Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Lee Show. Quick shout out to loyal listener, Rich Moreau. Spotted him on Madison Avenue this morning, looking great. Rich, it is time for you to become a paid supporter of the show. Go click the link. We discussed last week about how Facebook has been getting grilled in Congress and the press with this bullshit fake whistleblower PR stunt that this woman did. Uh, And we've talked a lot about how the media and the politicians used to have much more concentration of power. They were the gatekeepers of who could have a public voice. Uh, Social media has totally upended that, right? Facebook, Twitter, Substack, they've given anyone, including idiots like me, the ability to build a following and to have a voice. And the newspapers don't like that. It makes sense. It's taking away their power. So they're all rallied behind the idea of taking Facebook down a notch. But while Facebook is in the hot seat, I think there's attention that deserves to be paid to a different technology giant, which is Amazon. Amazon does many wonderful things. I mean, think about the total, I'll I'll start with the positive. Think about the total amount of time and effort that you save as an individual or as a family by being able to order things from Amazon. It's quite remarkable. I have a theory, which I don't know how to prove out empirically, but I have a theory that the true benefit of e-commerce to our economy has barely been recognized because these services allow a lot more women to enter the workforce than ever before. Because we know that for better or for worse, women often have the role of being the people who run their households. And that's a lot of work. And if you can reduce the amount of time they have to spend doing that, there's more time available for them to do other things, right? If you don't need to do stuff like going to buy detergent, you can spend your time on something a lot more useful. And I think we're only in the middle innings of this. It's not not the first inning, but we're only in the middle innings of this. It's what my managerial accounting professor in college called non-value added time. And arguably commuting to and from work goes in that same bucket. If we see this continued shift towards fully remote and hybrid work jobs, and there's pros and cons, and we can talk about that another time, that's going to serve to create a huge boost in available hours. Now, most people don't yet have their groceries delivered to them. A lot of people feel uncomfortable about it. They think that the guy who's doing it is going to break their eggs or pick rotten avocados. I I don't know that this service is going to take over 100% of the grocery shopping business, but it is going to make a big dent. And think about how many hours that saves. I did a little research on this. How many hours do you think Americans spend shopping for groceries each week? Well, I found one source, seems reliable, I don't know, that says that Americans on average go grocery shopping 1.6 times a week for 43 minutes on average. Let's say that's all American adults do that. So I did some rough math to figure out what this means. GDP in the U.S. per hour 
for a working age adult is about $50. So the average adult makes 1.6 trips to the grocery store and spends 43 minutes doing it. That's a waste of 296 million man hours per week. If you spent all of that grocery shopping time on something more productive, that would add about $783 billion to US GDP. That's a 3.7% boost to GDP. Think about that. Now, I don't know that this is going to become 100% market share, this online grocery stuff, but let's say it it grows to be even half of that. That's still a 1.9% boost to GDP. And I know this math is crude and I'm sure there's flaws in it. That's a remarkable amount. And so I think that we are still in the relatively early stages of understanding the productivity boost from e-commerce and its benefit to all of us. And as productivity improves, that's good for holding down inflation. I think broadly, we have been mismeasuring productivity growth in this country for like 20 years. And the value of things from Microsoft Word and email and Excel and just the, the entire digital revolution. The, the last one, we're not even talking about Web3. That's still to come. But the value of that has been undercounted. And that's part of why inflation has been so low for so long is because productivity is greater than we are measuring. It's one of the reasons why the Fed has been able to keep interest rates down for so long. And we'll come back to the inflation question in a second. So e-commerce has been one of the great innovations of the past century. Amazon is the pioneer in the business. Jeff Bezos is a hero. He looks like a schmuck flying into space in his penis rocket, but he's a hero. But that doesn't mean that he can do no wrong. Because also, Amazon has been doing some predatory things. All of these merchants, they they list their products on Amazon. And Amazon can see which products are successful, which are getting clicks and attention, and then it can go knock them off. AA batteries are doing well. Let's make them ourselves. We'll do a private label. We'll call it Amazon Basics. You like peppermint soap? Let's make our own. Amazon has been using its access to data to compete with its sellers. And these sellers, in a sense, are like a type of customer for Amazon, right? Amazon is making money off of them, and it's being predatory by ripping them off. I don't like that. Amazon sent some senior executives in front of Congress, and these guys lied. They said they're not doing this, but clearly they are. The Wall Street Journal did a really good piece on this subject uh, last year. I'm going to read a, uh, a quote from the Wall Street Journal article. The online retailing giant has long asserted, including to Congress, that when it makes and sells its products, it doesn't use information it collects from the site's individual third-party sellers, data those sellers view as proprietary. Now listen to this. Yet interviews with more than 20 former employees of Amazon's private label business and documents reviewed by the Wall Street Journal revealed that employees did just that. Such information can help Amazon decide how to price an item which features to copy, or whether to enter a product segment based on its earnings potential. According to people familiar with the practice, including current employee, blah, blah. this week, a group of Congress people sent a letter to Amazon and they said, 
did you tell the truth last year? Because it seems that they sure did not when they testified in front of Congress. So here, let me read another quote. In a letter sent to Amazon CEO Andy Jassy on Sunday, five members of Congress asked the company to provide exculpatory evidence to corroborate the sworn testimony that several leaders, including then-CEO Jeff Bezos, provided to the House Judiciary Committee's Antitrust Subcommittee in 2019 and 2020. The letter was signed by Representative Blah and Blah and Blah and Blah and Matt Gates. Matt Gates. Uh, the subcommittee probed Amazon's use of data from third-party sellers as it has developed private label products. Private label. Did I say label? Label. We strongly encourage you to make use of this opportunity to correct the record and provide the committee with sworn, truthful, and accurate responses to this request as we consider whether a referral of this matter to the Department of Justice for criminal investigation is appropriate, wrote the members. Blah, blah. That's an interesting group they got there, like all, all sorts of goofballs writing that letter. But what happened with that Matt Gates thing with the underage women? Did that just like go away? Remember that? Look, Amazon has been incredibly beneficial to the economy, to women. It has created so many jobs. What an amazing company. But they've also preyed on smaller businesses. And these businesses don't have a choice. If everyone is only buying from Amazon, what choice do they have? They have to go through that platform. You're not going to go say, I'm going to get my batteries from some random website. Amazon is taking advantage of its size and its scale and its power in the market to do predatory things. Isn't that kind of the definition of having monopoly power? You know, I've said it before, we have a long history of suspicion of power in this country. It's part of what makes America strong. Whether it meets some legal definition of a trust or a monopoly, that's only part of the story. We don't want private companies whose leaders are not elected to become too big. That's bad for democracy. We want innovation and competition and low prices and scale, but we need some checks on power. And Amazon is squashing competition. So back to the question of inflation and productivity. You know, I spent many years of my career investing in companies in what's called the basic materials space, chemicals, metals, mining, so let's think about how that industry works for a second. Supply comes from facilities, right? You have a steel plant, you have a chemical plant, you have a mine. Let's imagine, let's think about the steel industry for a second. Let's imagine, I'm going to make up some numbers here, that the entire steel industry produces 100 tons of steel. That You've got a whole bunch of plants and they produce 100 tons of steel in total. And there's demand for 100 tons of steel. And then some guy comes along and he's like, wow, I think the market is strong or people are going to do a lot of construction or whatever. And so he says, I'm going to build a new plant. And that plant is going to have capacity to make 10 new tons of steel. It takes him a few years to do it. It costs him a ton of money, hundreds of millions of dollars. And then it's complete. And after a few years, he's got the very best steel plant. His costs are lower than anyone else. It's more efficient. It's cleaner. It's better. I don't know. So in our hypothetical industry, and I made some charts that you can find in the Substack that'll help illustrate this visually. In our hypothetical steel industry, the highest cost producer, his costs to make steel are $159 
per ton. And the industry needs 100 tons of steel. So since that guy needs to at least break even, the cost of steel in the industry is going to be $159. That guy needs to make money to keep going. So everyone is going to sell their steel for $159. That means that the highest cost guy is barely squeaking by, but the lowest cost person, and you'll see this if you look at the graphs in the Substack, the lowest cost person in our in our hypothetical, his costs are much lower. Let's say $108 per ton. So that guy is making a huge profit on every ton of steel that he sells. It's good to be the low cost producer. But then we have this new entrant, right? This new guy who builds a new factory and his costs are even lower. Let's say that his costs are only $100 per ton. But since there's demand for only 100 tons of steel, we then go to the new marginal producer of steel. And what that means is we say, who's the new next marginal producer? Again, it's harder to explain this. You got to look at my charts that I made, very pretty graphs. But if you look at them, you'd see we had a, a new hypothetical producer with even lower costs, $155 a ton. So that becomes the market price of steel, which means that the high cost guy from our previous scenario, he's losing money. He's losing $4 on every ton of steel that he makes. So how long before this fellow gives up and stops making steel? It depends on how long it takes for him to burn through all of his equity. And after that, he's going to go borrow money. And the entire time, he's going to keep on making steel and not give up, hoping that the market will come back. Eventually, the guy's going to run out of money and he's not going to be able to pay the interest on the money he borrowed and he's going to go bankrupt. But time and again, we've seen someone else will swoop in, convince that they can do it better. So they're going to rescue that high cost plant and it's still not going to go out of business. And the industry is left with a persistent supply glut. This is exactly what happened in the steel industry for the past decade. There was too much supply. And even though the producers were losing money, that supply did not go away. And supply in this industry, again, I want you to go and look up the graphs that I made. Supply in this type of industry looks like a step function. Picture that in your head. Each new plant adds an incremental step of capacity to the industry. Now, I always found it interesting. If, if you meet with an executive from a steel company, and I've spent a lot of time with the CEO of every large steel company, they keep telling you that their industry is in a recession, not at this moment, but for the last decade. And that never made sense to me because the broader economy wasn't in a recession. So why did they think that there was a recession? But for them, there was. It was a supply-driven recession. There was too much supply, oversupply. No one could make any profits, even with the economy doing well. And that type of recession is really hard to work out of. No one wants to shut down capacity. Certainly not the guy who just built the new facility. He's got the best thing out there. And so all of this oversupply serves to be an overhang on this industry. Now contrast that with a demand-driven recession. Demand tends to look like a sine wave. It goes up, it goes down, it fluctuates a little, but it's not a step function necessarily. But a sine wave means that it can turn on a dime. That's a lot easier to handle. When demand is too low, you can tweak some things like interest rates and change the demand. 
it's a lot harder to change supply in individual industries. So for much of the past decade, in just about every one of those basic material industries, and in every manufacturing industry, really, no one has added capacity. No one has been investing in new supply and new factories. Just the opposite. Companies have been taking all the profits that they generate and using them to fund share buybacks. This has been good for the stock market. It's been good for keeping corporate profits higher. Because with a lid on supply, you can keep prices constant and the high cost producers won't lose too much money. But what happens when the economy grows? What happens when demand grows? Then you don't have enough supply. And then pricing switches to what's called a value in use metric. That means the buyer who wants the steel the most and has the best use for the steel is going to be willing to pay the most for it. That's a supplier's dream. But it also means that we as a society are going to have prices going higher. And that is precisely what's happening right now. Over the past 18 months, there's been an unprecedented amount of stimulus spending. And coinciding with this is 10 plus years of underinvestment in supply. Plus, don't forget, at the beginning of COVID-19, when companies all thought that it was a good idea to shut down even more supply, they thought like, all right, the world's ending forever. So now we have not enough supply and too much demand. Now, the mechanism that resolves that is price. That's what's happening right now. Prices are going higher. That's inflation. I don't understand why so many people are surprised that we have inflation now. It makes perfect sense. When basic industries are seeing value and use pricing, it means that demand is far greater than supply. It means that prices are going to be rising. Now, I don't think that voters like inflation. I don't think it makes them happy. It makes it hard for them to plan for the future. That means that the Federal Reserve will be forced to act. Jason DeSena Trenert wrote last week that the U.S. has used a policy of financial repression. Interest rates were held very low to fund low-cost government spending. In other words, keep interest rates down and the government can borrow in infinity quantity because there's no interest that they have to pay on it. They just keep borrowing. Makes sense. He implies that it's a little conspiratorial. I don't know. Arnold Kling, who I think is a brilliant economist, makes this point. The Fed will be under tremendous pressure not to raise interest rates because of the devastation it would bring to financial assets and the cost it would impose on the government deficit. My thoughts, his thoughts, I'm still reading his quote. Interest rates are low, either because A, the Fed has the power to control them and is keeping them artificially low, or B, the natural forces of supply and demand favor low interest rates because global supply of savings is high, global demand for investment is low, and or preferences for low-risk assets are high. He believes that B is the more likely scenario. And I agree with him. There is a glut of savings. And we'll, we'll talk about that another time. There is a glut of savings. Global investment demand is low because no one's building new capacity of anything. And so interest rates have stayed low. And when the Fed finally is forced to raise interest rates, it's going to lead to a demand 
government-driven recession. That's going to be a big problem for government spending. They're going to have to turn off the spigots. It's going to be a big problem for the economy. But in the meantime, we are going to have inflation. So get ready for it. I talked about the Chappelle special on last week's podcast. You know, I said what I had to say about it. I think he's a great comedian. I don't think this was his finest work. It wasn't terrible, but it really wasn't very funny. It wasn't very offensive either. It was sort of a, a nothing. There were a couple of mediocre jokes about trans people. I think he's done much funnier bits before. I think he's done more insightful bits before. Um, it's a little odd that he keeps going off on the subject of trans people because he, he's talked about this in just about every one of his specials. And, and I don't think he's offering any new insights. I, I think his perspective is in line with what like 99% of Americans believe. That doesn't mean I agree with him. It doesn't mean I, I, I'm, I'm siding with him. My opinion has always been be who you want to be. And I, I think there's an interesting tangent raised here which The Economist highlighted in a piece a couple of weeks ago, and it made a a very insightful point, which is about how we refer to women. So I'm going to read a quote from The Economist that I thought was, was very useful. Bodies with vaginas is an odd way to refer to half the human race. Yet it was the quote that The Lancet, a medical journal, chose to feature on the cover of its latest issue telling readers that historically the anatomy and physiology of such bodies have been neglected. After complaints about dehumanizing language, the Lancet apologized. But it is not alone. A growing number of officials and organizations are finding themselves tongue-tied when it comes to using the word woman. Furthermore, understanding could suffer. Medical advice, for instance, has to be clear and intelligible by all. That is why Britain's National Health Service often prefers words like stomachache to dyspepsia or heart attack to myocardial infarction. It just confuses people, doesn't it? One survey conducted by a cervical cancer charity suggested that around 40% of women are unsure about the details of what exactly a cervix is. This implies that asking people with cervixes to turn up for screening appointments may not be clear or intelligible, especially to women who have English as their second language. It's a good point. I think that we are expending a lot of breath and twisting ourselves in knots linguistically and culturally. And it sort of feels like nonsense. And I'm not talking about the pronouns people want to use to refer to themselves. This has nothing to do with that. But somehow women are being reduced to a collection of body parts in the way we we refer to them. I think that's inappropriate. I think that's offensive. Linguistically and culturally, we are twisting ourselves in knots. And we're doing it to accommodate the apparent needs and feelings of a tiny group of people. We are over-indexing to the woke mafia. I don't believe that it is credible to argue that Netflix airing the Chappelle special is going to lead to real-world violence towards trans people. And I think that wokeness has pivoted us towards a system 
in which people assume power through grievance. And then it becomes a, a competition to see who can be the most offended, because if you're the most offended, you're the most influential. But competitive suffering is not a cultural strength. It's not a mechanism by which we create soft power. Side note, John Gruden on the hot seat because of his idiotic emails that came to light. And, and there's not much to say about him. He wrote offensive stuff in emails. He knew better. He lost his job. I, don't, I mean, I don't have some affinity for him. I, I don't think he got railroaded. Like what he did was stupid. The most interesting part of this is learning that he has a son named Deuce Gruden, who's a midget bodybuilder. And you'll see in the Substack, if you open it up, an incredible photo of him. I mean, if you just Google Deuce Gruden, like look at this guy in his Redskins shirt. That to me, like I would guess if you scan through Deuce Gruden's emails, that it's going to be like a a Hunter Biden situation or something like that. Because he definitely looks like he said some inappropriate stuff about groups of people. I'm trying to make my way through Crossroads by Jonathan Franzen as fast as I can. I borrowed it from the East Hampton Public Library, and they have this special loan option for new books in high demand where you can borrow them for seven days, but with no renewals. But this book is 681 pages, so I'm trying to plow through it right now. You know, one of the things that I've always loved about Franzen is that it brings out my inner narcissism because his characters reflect so much of my personality. And it's not that there's one individual character where I'm like, that's me, right? There's no Larry David character where that's like encompasses me, but it's rather that the sum of his male characters, and it, it's really the male ones, echoes so much of my own experience. Little things, big things, emotions, fears, insecurities, of which I have many. And so maybe I like his books because I feel like he gets me and I get him and I see myself reflected. But I also love his writing style. I love the way he tells stories. I love the amount of detail he provides and the words he uses. One of the concepts that I, I think Franzen really explores in this book is the way that understanding pain and need are so essential to the human experience, to how we relate to others. And the more privileged we are, the more we're insulated from those feelings, the more we're disconnected from them. And because so much of society experiences those feelings every day, being separated from them makes it harder to relate to other people, it makes it harder to be empathetic. It doesn't mean that we want everyone to have those experiences or that they're good. If anything, the more society can create wealth and insulate people from that struggle and pain, that's better. The solution isn't always to strip away the privilege from those who have it, but to try to bring up the average. But until that happens, it's hard to have an authentic experience without being able to relate to the pain and suffering of others. So far, I'm on page 486. I've got two days left to finish it. I highly recommend the book. I'm planning to run my second marathon this coming weekend. Uh, it's the New York City Marathon, sort of the New York City Marathon. Last year, they did not do an in-person marathon because of COVID. So it was what they called a virtual race where you would run it anywhere. You'd track yourself on this app and then you submit it. 
definitely not the same as doing a race in person. You don't have the crowds and the cheering and the fans and the cowbell and all that stuff. This year, there is an in-person marathon, but I fucked up and I didn't sign up in time. So I'm doing the virtual option again, which is kind of lame. But I mean, I'm doing it and I got a guaranteed entry for next year's marathon in person. So this year, I'm, my plan is I'm going to run it at Randall's Island. My son has a double header there for Little League on Saturday morning. It's a beautiful place to run. If you've never been to Randall's Island, highly recommend going for a run there. Uh, there's this five-mile path that goes around the island. You go under this gorgeous bridge. There is a mental hospital, but whatever, you can ignore that. Um, and, and I'll have water stations for myself because every time I run past my car, each loop, I'm going to have a water station. Uh, last year, my time was three hours and 54 minutes. I started out too quickly, but then by like mile 18, I was basically dragging my right leg around with me everywhere I went. My training this year has been okay. I haven't done enough long runs. I've been too focused on speed work. Uh, my longest run so far was only 16 miles. So I'm faster than I was last year. I did a half marathon race uh, three weeks ago and I PR'd in that. Um, so hopefully I'll have the endurance to carry me through this weekend. I, I don't know. I mean, I've been using... KT tape to prevent shin splints. That's been helpful. Uh, I've said it before. I'm a big believer in Morton products. Um, I think those are are great for, for nutrition while you're running. You know, my, my father ran numerous races. My father had really strong legs and huge calves, and he was in great shape, which is, you know, shocking because, like, my legs look like I have a, a wasting disease. And um, my father ran numerous races and he ran the New York City Marathon a few times. And you know, I talked a couple weeks ago about how I used to spend my weekends growing up going grocery shopping with my father in New Jersey and he he had this coupon wallet that he carried around with him every year. And one of my favorite treats as a kid was ice pops. We usually had the Dole brand of ice pops in the freezer and I would eat those for dessert, but my favorites were the froze fruit bars, but those were much more expensive. And my father would definitely not buy those for me. But one of the sponsors of the New York Roadrunners and the marathon used to be froze fruits. And so at the end of a race, you know, they give the runners those mylar sheets to wrap around themselves so they can stay warm. And then there'd be like a table with snacks to, to replenish your sugar and your nutrients after a race. So my father being the stingy hoarder that he was, he would lie the mylar sheet on the ground and he'd fill it with as many ice pops as he could fit. And then he'd wrap it up and sling it over his shoulder like some sort of bizarre Norman Rockwell scene. And we lived close to the marathon finish line. So he would rush home to take these froze fruits out and put them in the freezer as fast as he possibly could. Now, given that I'm running the marathon on my own, I won't have any froze fruits at the end. But if I finish... I may celebrate with one just for old time's sake. With that, thanks again for listening. If you're not already a paid subscriber, please become one. It's easy. Just click on the link for listener support in the show notes of this podcast. Text me if you need a link. Let me know. It's easy. You can become a paid supporter on Substack if you prefer. I don't care which one you choose, but please choose one. Thank you in advance 
Remember that you can find me on Substack, Instagram, Twitter. I truly appreciate your support and I will be back with more soon.